Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. Today I'm speaking with Seth Kimmel. He's an assistant professor at the Department of Latin American and Iberian Cultures at Columbia University. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So many of our listeners probably know about the Reconquista and the eventual culmination in 1492 uh, with expulsion of the Jews from Spain, followed shortly thereafter with expulsion of the Jews and Muslims from Portugal in 1497, and the eventual kind of forced conversion of Jews, the population of Muslims that remained on the Iberian Peninsula, um, the Moriscos, who remained there until about 1609, when they too uh, were eventually expelled from that area or forcibly converted. But what we're going to be talking about today is this question of early modern Iberian conversion and the Ottoman imaginary, how the fear or the Ottoman presence uh, in the Mediterranean as it was expanding over the 16th century kind of played into these questions over the anxieties of Spanish Christians uh, as to what to do with the Muslims who came through the Iberian Peninsula. And we're going to be talking today with Seth Kimmel, and he's a great person to talk to about this topic because he's published recently, uh, just over a year ago, a book called Parables of Coercion, Conversion and Knowledge at the End of Islamic Spain. So welcome again. Thank you. So maybe we could just set the scene here. In 1492, or around that time, um, with the completion of the Reconquista, how many Muslims were left? What is the story of the end of Islam on the Iberian Peninsula? Yeah. So in 1492, when the Catholic kings enter and take over Granada, there were protections for the Muslim community that lived there. Mm -hmm. um, and there was about a 10-year process of seeking their conversion peacefully, evangelizing them. Around the turn of the century, uh, that process turned a little, turned more violent, and there was more coercion, uh, coerced conversion. Um, and so that really marks the beginning of the Morisco period. The Moriscos are the community of Muslims that converted to Christianity uh, mm -hmm. during that process. Um, and as you mentioned, so the, the, the Morisco period goes from the turn of the century until about 1609, when they were eventually expelled from the peninsula. So that's the period that interests me. It's a period when Christian intellectuals and various other various communities of scholars mm -hmm. are trying to figure out how to make sense of those conversions. Um, are these Moriscos actually Christians? Are they not? What is their relationship with Muslims from elsewhere in the Mediterranean? Um, as you also mentioned, there's, there was great anxiety about collusion between the Morisco community and potential Ottoman forces invading the peninsula. So that's one of the points of connection that I think your listeners might be interested to, to hear about. So just to get a little bit more background, I mean, how many Moriscos, how many Muslims are we speaking about in the Iberian Peninsula in this time? So the Morisco community probably was composed of about 200,000 to 300,000 members. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to know exactly, but... Are they urban or peasants or... Um, both. There was, a, there was a large rural community protected by local nobility, but there also were urban Muslim converts to Christianity, especially in southern cities in Granada, as well as in various parts of Valencia and Barcelona, for example. So that's one group of uh, Muslims. But then there's, you know, other groups of Muslims that you mentioned in your work, you know, Muslims from across the Mediterranean and also the, you know, the question of the Ottomans, right? Sure. So, I mean, there's all sorts of merchants that are crisscrossing the Mediterranean. There's exchange of captives. There's mm -hmm. various other kinds of military contact, of course. And then there's the Ottomans on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. And so the Moriscos allegedly were, were seeking the support of the Ottomans. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's unclear to what extent that support was actually forthcoming. Um, probably not very much. Uh, there was a Morisco rebellion at the end of the 16th century, which failed. 
but it led to the eventual expulsion. I mean, it was the it was the moment where where the the opponents of Morisco assimilation really became a more powerful voice on the peninsula. Hmm. Okay, so it sounds like up to now, like up until this rebellion at the end of the 16th century, that there was a variety of different opinions about how to deal with this Morisco population. You know, part of them were assimilationists, part of them were, you know, expulsionists. So could you maybe just explain to us kind of what are the two different sides and who, why one ended up winning out? Okay, yeah, so there are various different um, uh, positions, uh, all of which want the Morisco community to be assimilated. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really, the goal is to make these this, this community of Moriscos good Christians. Yeah. And so the question was how to do that. And so some argued for a more coercive agenda, uh, regulating their, their previously cultural uh, aspects. So not allowing their, them to speak Arabic, not mm-hmm. allowing them to dress in the traditional Morisco manner, um, not allowing them to continue bathing in the Islamic style. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as those previously cultural features of their community became sanctified as yeah. kind of orthodox Christian practice, there was this, this process of seeking to outlaw them. Um, and so some, some scholars were in favor of that and others were against. The community managed to negotiate the non-enforcement of any prohibitions up until the late part of the 16th century. And the rebellion began because there was a moment where, where the crown sought to enforce those regulations on their cultural aspects of their mm-hmm. community. And so for me, that's a really interesting question, is how, how do these various communities of scholars decide what counts as religious or what counts as cultural? And there's professional motivations involved. I mean, canon lawyers of the period wanted to expand their own influence and so they had they had skin in the game really mm-hmm. in expanding what counted as religious. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, so could you just give us kind of one example of that? I mean, what one of these debates between the cultural and the religious? Sure. So there's a court historian named Pedro de Valencia who argued that Morisco crimes should be persecuted in a secular tribunal, which mm-hmm. is to say, it shouldn't be it shouldn't fall under the under the realm of the inquisitorial authority. Um, so that was a way of secularizing Morisco disloyalty, let's call it, rather than making their various sorts of heterodox practices a religious question. Mm. So that, I think, is a key moment um, when you have an effort to assimilate the Morisco community, but not using the coercive force of the Inquisition. Okay, so there seems like there's multiple. The coercive force of the Inquisition would just kind of force them to behave as Christians. Or police their practice or police their in some way. So, yeah, I mean, the, the coercive force of the Inquisition has a social aspect. Old Christians who have daily interactions with new Christians, with Moriscos, have all sorts of reasons for subj- sending them to the Inquisition, mm-hmm. right? For accusing them of some kind of heresy. Um, and this guy, Pedro de Valencia, and some others uh, of the late 16th century said, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, accuse them of heresy we should treat their crimes as if they were secular crimes. And that's a way of seeking their assimilation, but not not using religious categories. Mm. Okay, so I just wanted to get to, just to figure this out in a bit more detail. You have the Moriscos remaining on the Iberian Peninsula. There's kind of mass conversions in the early 16th century. They're considered new Christians. And I'm just trying to get a sense of kind of what would be considered, what would be one of these things, you know, uh, an old Christian neighbor would take an, a new Christian neighbor to court for that could be considered both a religious, a crime against Christianity, or possibly a secular crime. 
So after Morisco cultural practices began to be regulated and prohibited, the question was, is it a religious crime or a secular crime to speak Arabic, for mm -hmm. example? Is Arabic a marker of secret Islam, or is it just a cultural remnant of the Islamic community on the peninsula? So there are, there are different opinions on that, and the, the more, let's call them, Irenic uh, group seeks to regulate that kind of practice through the secular tribunal, mm -hmm. whereas the more um, polemical and, and coercive group of scholars uh, seeks rather to treat that kind of crime as a religious crime mm -hmm. and to subject it to inquisitorial interrogation. So how would you pr stop someone from speaking Arabic through secular law? That's a great question. I mean, so the, the crown just outlaws it. Mm -hmm. So then there, there's a certain reliance on presence of inquisitors in, in actual locales. And there's great debate among specialists in the Inquisition to what extent were inquisitors actually present or not. And so the short answer to your question is it's really difficult uh, to know whether somebody's speaking Arabic, especially in private. Yeah. And the truth is that the Morisco community over time began to lose its ability to speak Arabic. Right. This is why they exchanged texts in Spanish but written in Arabic letters. Uh, because they no longer really could. They weren't literate in Arabic anymore. Mm. But many did continue to speak Arabic on the street and among their own community. And so that, that caused great anxiety among old Christians, that, that this community retained its markers of independence and retained these markers that were associated with the Islamic community in the late 15th century. So let's say someone was walking on the street speaking Arabic. This had been banned by the state by decree, right? In the late 1560s. The late, okay. Yeah. But then there was also, you know, one could also take this as a marker of heresy that these people were continuing to keep their attachment to Islamic uh, codes of conduct, mm -hmm. Islamic culture, or things like that. I mean, what would the punishment be? How would it be different, for instance, if you were, you know, taken to court for refusing for speaking Arabic in a, in a secular court? I mean, if we're to kind of, I don't know, simplify it to that question of, you know, differences of punishment. Yeah, for example, a secular court might seek some kind of pecuniary punishment, right? You might be able to pay your way out, right? whereas crimes of heresy are much more serious in general. You risk not only jail, you risk excommunication. And so the, the, the effort to secularize Morisco crimes of heresy yeah. was really an attempt to uh, more peacefully assimilate them. So it's no less coercive, yeah. but it's a different approach. Mm -hmm. So did it succeed? Well, no. I mean, so so ultimately the Moriscos were uh, expelled at the beginning part of the 17th century. And so that's that's one of the it's one of the things that I grapple with in my book. It's I'm not interested in a story of resistance. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not interested in a story of uh, the failure, the failure of that more let's call them tolerant com uh, community of scholars. What I'm really interested in is the way philologists, people who study language, uh, historians, lawyers, use debates about the Morisco community to re transform their own fields. Mm -hmm. to, they, use them, they use these debates for professional, local professional and institutional ends. So in the end, I'm an intellectual historian of Christian scholars, right. and the thematic kind of common ground is debates about the Moriscos. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, totally. So on that note, I mean, let's move on to the kind of the core of your research, which is this question of, well, what kind of intellectual problems were posed, you know, 
by these questions of conversion and having to figure out uh, who was a real Christian or not and how. Okay, so it, it's, it really goes beyond the question of who's a Christian and who's right. not a Christian. Um, so, for example, historians of the late, late 16th century have to grapple with that issue that we just raised a second ago, which is how do we tell the story of the failure of Morisco assimilation? Mm. Um, and especially in the wake of this rebellion of the, Al- the Alpujaras in the late 1560s, um, which was a disaster not only for the Morisco community, but for the, the wider region, um, how do we tell the story? And so historians, people like Diego Hurtado Mendoza and other uh, historians of that war had to find a way to tell a more critical local story rather than an apologetic story of imperial success, which it was. The Morisco Rebellion was put down, but what's so interesting is that these historians are putting pressure on that celebratory narrative. Mm. And they did that by, really, by reforming historical practice. They sought a whole range of different kinds of sources. They interviewed what we would now call local informants. They, they sought correspondence in Arabic. They made stylistic reforms in the way that they wrote their histories. So that's an example of the way a community of historians used the Morisco question, let's say, uh, as a way to put pressure on the conventions of history writing. Mm. So the Morisco question becomes much bigger than these questions of just, you know, religion and what is religion and are these people Christian, but, you know, forces them to adopt new intellectual practices. And I was just wondering, can you kind of give us the story of one of these historians and kind of the choices that they made as they were uh, writing these this history of the failed assimilation of the Moriscos. Yeah, so Hurtado Mendoza is a great example. He wrote his history not from court in Madrid, but rather from Granada, the site of the rebellion. He um, he was a great collector of all different sorts of uh, manuscript and printed books in a variety of languages, and so he was well placed to seek out alternative, let's call it primary source material. Mm-hmm. Um, related to the rebellion. So what did he find? He, I mean, he integrated, uh, for example, correspondence among Morisco rebels. Of course, it's hard to tell to what extent those texts are fictionalized. Yeah. Right? He doesn't have footnotes. (laughs) Um, But you see him at least struggling to tell the story of the rebellion from below. But why? I mean, why is he so interested in incorporating, like, actual Morisco sources and uh, testimony of the events. I think because he recognizes that this rebellion poses an opportunity as a historian to reinvent historical practice. I think really he wants to be both honest to the violence of the rebellion, but he is invested in rethinking what it means to be a historian in the moment. Interesting. I mean and so and we're talking about history right now and you said you said earlier that uh that part of what's at stake here is the conventions of scholarly practice and not just a debate about religion. Right. But I think we shouldn't minimize the debate about religion either. I mean, right, they're what, intimately intertwined in this case. Yeah. Sure. I mean, what counts as, as Christian orthodoxy is a key question. Um, and so this is another facet, for example, even for Hurtado Mendoza, the historian, he refuses to treat the Morisco rebellion as a kind of Islamic resistance. Hmm. He rather paints the rebels as political rebels. I mean, their disloyalty is, in his view, political rather than religious. And so that's a way of telling the story of the Moriscos using what we would call kind of secular terms. And that's that's really important. That's one feature of the way in which the line between what's religious and what's cultural or political or economic gets, gets drawn in the mm-hmm. period. 
So I'm still trying to understand kind of what's at stake for these historians. You know, you have one option of like they're interest they're scholars and they want to do have good scholarly practice and some sort of internal like intellectual motivation. On the other hand, you know, there's this question of trying to understand the implications of the Morisco revolt for Christian orthodoxy. And I was just wondering, what are the differences amongst these historians uh, or amongst these scholars that are trying to understand the Morisco rebellion? How do they interpret it? You know, you've given one example of one person interprets it politically uh, as a secular rebellion, I presume against, I don't know, taxes or something like that. And then, I mean, are there people that interpret it religiously, that interpret it as a battle of faiths? Sure. So apologists for expulsion yeah. at the beginning of the 17th century look back at the rebellion of the 1560s and say, look, here's another example of the Morisco community's continued heresy, that they read the rebellion in terms of a long history of the heterodoxy of these new Christians mm-hmm. um, and say the conversions of the early 16th century were false conversions. And we can see that now in retrospect. So how did they, did they have any developed new ways of proving that or new types of historical methodologies for that? No, I mean, part of what's so interesting is that is that it's impossible to prove or disprove. Yeah. Uh, and what's at stake is new ways of measuring what counts as heretical or orthodox. And so much of my research focuses on scholars from, from various different, scholars who have various different agendas who all agree in some way that you can't ultimately prove what somebody believes on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so there is an increasing emphasis on defining the boundaries of orthodoxy by what is visible. Mm -hmm. And that's what's behind the regulation of the cultural practice, regulating dress, regulating Mm -hmm. speech, regulating forms of eating, etc. Well, I think this is quite fascinating because it obviously goes along with, um, you know, what scholars are discovering, for instance, on the Ottoman side of things, that there is this greater, one, there's a greater push to redefine heresy you know, and, and as I and other people have looked in our research, we know we find that the Ottoman government, through the Sheikh al-Islam and through other uh, scholars, is pushing a definition of Islam that's very much defined by practice. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of you know Minkarizade and a few others before him, that really kind of tried to impose upon the various jurists and scholars of the Ottoman Empire this notion that. It's not just inner belief that makes you an apostate or not. That you don't just have to say, "I, you know, don't believe in Muhammad" to mark yourself as not a Muslim. It's you know, fact like your smoking or the way you dress or things like mm-hmm. that that can easily become markers of um, heresy. And they wanted to kind of prosecute, persecute people uh, based upon those markers. Yeah, I mean, the question of practice is key. And there's a certain, I mean, even if the agenda is coercive, there's there's something epistemologically honest about recognizing the inability to know what somebody's private belief is. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of contemporary anthropologists of religion who are uh, putting that question of practice at the center of debates about religion and secularism, for example. Mm. Like, uh, who are you thinking of? So Talal Assad is, is a key key figure. Charles Hirschkind, Saba Mahmoud, people who work... Um, the core people questioning the narrative of secular uh, secularity exactly. uh, in contemporary society. Exactly. I mean, part of what's interesting about about those scholars is that they are concerned both with the, the contemporary uh, politics of religion and, especially in the case of Talal Assad, with a kind of medieval backstory about religious practice. Yeah. And what something that gets lost in the middle is the early modern period. Mm. 
Um, and so I see my work as trying to fill that gap in some way. Okay, welcome back. Uh, this is Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Seth Kimmel uh, about the question of conversion in the Iberian Peninsula in the 16th century uh, and the different kind of intellectual developments that it leads to. And before we were speaking about this question of the failed Morisco assimilation into Spanish society, which ultimately resulted in their expulsion. But as people kind of dealt with this uh, issue about how to understand it, they were forced to kind of develop some new intellectual tools. And we just kind of mentioned uh, some of those for the practice of history, but I was wondering, you know, what other fields of knowledge were impacted by this? Sure. So another field of knowledge that was deeply impacted by uh, conversion, not only from Islam, but also from Judaism, was language study, Mm -hmm. what we would now call philology. So the integration of Arabic language education into the Hebrew classroom was a major development in the course of the middle, middle part of the 16th century, late part of the 16th century. And so conversos, Jews who had converted to Christianity, were the primary Hebraists of the moment. And uh, with the anxiety about the Morisco's use of Arabic, there was this kind of popular uh, and coercive need to know Arabic, Mm -hmm. but also a more erudite need. So this growing sense that to understand the Hebrew of the Bible, it was important to have some kind of comparative Semitic language context. Mm. Um, And so you see uh, there's, there's wonderful archival material of students struggling through their, you know, their first year of Arabic class or whatever. Um, with their word lists and grammars. Um, and you, you really see how Arabic becomes part of the scholarly conversation mm-hmm. uh, during this period. And it's, not, it's, of course, not coincidental that this is the period when the Inquisition is starting to turn more heavily towards the, the Moriscos, uh, and there's, there's both interest in and anxiety about, about Ar- the Arabic language and Arabic education. So it's almost, in a sense, a sort of birth of comparative philology... Yeah, that's so right. Yeah. That's right. And the the justification for that comparatism is as I said, it's it's for there's a kind of biblical humanistic uh, justification for that Semitic language comparative philology. Yeah. Which is not something that only happens in Spain, I presume, but also, you know, in Italy and other other major cities. Right. Europe. There's a there's a strong tradition in Rome and Florence right. of uh, of Arabic language education um, a little bit later in various parts of northern Europe and London. But the peninsular example is unique in all sorts of ways, not least because there is this Morisco community there <laughs> in the yeah. moment. Um, and so there, there is this, there's wonderful stories about no, uh, Northern Europeans coming to the peninsula in the middle part of the 16th century, hoping to learn Arabic and not finding, not finding the experts <laughs> necessary because it's still that moment of transition where yeah. uh, there's a kind of middling knowledge of Arabic mm-hmm. as a kind of, calling card among avant-garde Hebraists. Right. So you show a little bit of knowledge of Arabic as a way of transforming what it means to be a Hebraist. Um, what kind of time, Arabic did they find, actually? I mean, you mentioned before that, for instance, these Moriscos actually lost the ability to speak Arabic. I mean, were they looking for some sort of colloquial dialects or were they just looking for, you know, some image of cla- what we consider to kind of classical Quranic Arabic or something like that? Yeah, so there, I mean, there are various different texts in Arabic uh, around uh, in the in the latter part of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. There are the seized learned histories, commentaries, grammars 
that weren't destroyed uh, in that early years of conversion, many of those texts ended up in the Escorial. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of community of people who are interested in Arabic that are engaging with those texts in a variety of ways in the Escorial. In the 1590s, there are the there's a kind of popular corollary. So there are these texts that are discovered in the hills outside of Granada that became known as the Sacramonte-led books. Right. Um, and so these texts imagine a Christianity that is flexible enough to, in, to, to make the Morisco community feel at home in it. So it, the, the texts present themselves as lost gospels mm-hmm. written in Arabic. So can you just explain what they are for maybe the listeners that don't know? So they're, they're, they're lead, the quote-unquote lead books. They're these circular lead tablets that, um, as I said, present themselves as a lost gospel. Yeah. And so there's great debate about how to translate those texts, what they mean, are they authentic, are they inauthentic? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the, the major Arabists of the period weighed in on them, yeah, largely agreeing that they were frauds, that they were forgeries. Mm-hmm. But that didn't stop all sorts of popular devotion to these texts yeah. among new and old Christians in Granada who were hungry for some kind of deep Christian history to what had until re- very recently been an Islamic city. Yeah. And so that popular devotion legitimized in some way these forgeries. Mm. I mentioned the text because they're, they're really the last text written in Arabic on the Iberian Peninsula mm. in that period. Wow, that's fascinating. So, I mean, there's basically a kind of afterlife of Arabic up until uh, these texts. That's right. And the, the afterlife, I mean, those texts stimulate Arabic education. Mm-hmm. So people seek to improve their Arabic knowledge in order to read those texts, both people who are are hoping to defend the text and those who are hoping to attack them yeah. need to improve their Arabic knowledge in order to read them. So once again, the centrality of kind of questions of conversion and debates over what is religion and what's not religion to kind of the intellectual development of Iberian culture. I do want to return uh, very quickly. In the beginning of the podcast, we mentioned this question of anxiety over the Ottomans. And, you know, where where did the Ottomans fit into this moment of anxiety over what to do with this Muslim population or new Christian population uh, and whether or not they'd be loyal. Yeah. So th- there there are stray documents where the Moriscos apparently sought contact with Ottoman, mm-hmm. ver- various Ottoman contacts. And so so that's that. It, it's hard to know to what extent that contact was real and to what extent that contact is a kind of fiction of of the anti-Morisco contingent, yeah. right, trying to, to delegitimize them. It seems like the Ottomans, in the end, did not have very much of a role in the Morisco rebellion, for example, and did, right. not have in, did not have very much contact with the Moriscos. But the fiction of uh, Ottoman intervention, the fear, the anxiety around Ottoman intervention, especially on the coastal areas mm-hmm. of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, was real. Um, a notion of a sort of constant menace that could sweep down at any moment. That's exactly right. I mean, and the the Moris- if the Moriscos are a kind of fifth column, as some people have argued, then between the, the internal role of the Moriscos and the external pressure from the Ottomans from the Mediterranean was a source of anxiety. I mean, by the beginning of the 17th century, that anxiety becomes sort of a joke. So Cervantes makes fun of that, of that idea that we should fear... The, the Ottoman menace. Mm-hmm. But where you stand on that Ottoman menace is a kind of test case for for um, for the Moriscos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on this question of fear and menace, we have to bring up the fact that we are today in living in a period in which the boundaries around the world are being divided according to notions of religion. And then 
you know, just one obvious example that a few days beforehand is this executive order that was signed by Trump, the so-called Muslim ban of, you know, nationals from seven predominantly Muslim countries from receiving visas to enter the United States. And for a while, it almost seemed like that uh, any green card holders would also be banned from re-entering the United States. And I don't want to, you know, make it such a heavy-handed comparison, but, you know, there is this question, we are in a time of questioning what exactly does it mean to be Muslim, or how do we divide, how do we set this line between culture and religion, in a sense? And this is something, you know, my own students often ask me in class. It's like, is, you know, what does Islam say about this? Or what the, you know, people of medieval Anatolia doing, Islamic or not? Are they good Muslims? Uh, you know, this is just a kind of a sort of central question that's on everyone's mind. You know, to phrase this into a question, there's this, what insights, I guess, can we gain from, you know, your examination of th- this moment of anxiety in 16th century Iberia? Yeah. It seems to me that there's a there's a, a basic parallelism that I think is uh, is really helpful. And it's paradoxical, I think, for, for many of us. And it's a parallelism between the inquisitorial need to decide what counts as religious in order to prosecute heresy and protect orthodoxy. And the need in modern liberal democracies to decide what counts as religious in order to protect it. So the separation of church and state entails a process of defining what is religious. And so that's, that's a key parallel because I think we can learn from the inquisitorial example to see how that process unfolds. So for example, in determining whether some marginal local religious practice uh, is is actually part of protected religion or not, oftentimes secular judges are put in the position of having to decide whether something is part of Islamic practice or not, for example, mm-hmm. uh, in order to decide whether it's protectable. Yeah, And so that's one example of the the porousness of this dichotomy between what is secular and what is religious. They shape one another. Right. Um, and that's that's something that we sometimes forget, I think, in the modern period. But in the early modern period, there's no, there's no anxiety about that, right? The idea, as I mentioned earlier, that a secular tribunal might try and prosecute Morisco crime as part of an evangelical project is not counterintuitive. Right. Um, and so... In some ways, by studying the early modern period and by studying the early modern ex- Iberian example in particular, we can defamiliarize those categories that we take for granted. And so you mentioned also the the Muslim ban. I mean, even so, critics call it a Muslim ban, and the new administration insists that it's not it's a not, Muslim yeah, ban. It's an immigration. It's an imi- it's it's restriction. Yeah. It's it's a national it's a national category. It's a political category rather than a religious yeah. category. And so there you you see you see the effort to to manage the rhetoric mm-hmm. in in all sorts of ways. How do you ban Muslims without without using the language of religion? Right. And so I think those of us who study the early modern period can be attentive. We have kind of fresh eyes to see how that rhetoric works. Yeah. So I think this is fascinating, kind of what you said, you know, how a historian or, in your case, a scholar of literature of the early modern period can really bring his or her knowledge to bear on contemporary political discourse. And I was just wondering, maybe you could just elaborate a little bit more 
what is it that early modernists, especially those of us that study the history of religion, uh, can bring to this discussion? Is it are we just seeing how things fall apart, so to speak? You know that this uh, secular liberal order that we up to recently were quite attached to is slowly being eroded, or can we imagine new forms of politics, or do we just have you know the analysis of the present? Yeah. So I think many many scholars and commentators are highly attuned to the ways in which the liberal project can be used for both inclusive and exclusive agendas, so that it can be a form of exclusion uh, as a well uh, as well as uh, tolerance or inclusion. Um, what it's I think sometimes more difficult to see is that the language of intolerance too uh, yeah. can apparent intolerance can serve all sorts of ends. And so I mean, this is one thing that I've learned from studying debates around Morisco assimilation and debates around, in the early modern period, debates about the Inquisition, which is that even those who are seeking to be critical of inquisitorial power and practice are in some ways employing the language of Inquisition. Yeah. Um, and so it's, I think it's important to follow the ends, to see what sorts of goals people are, are, are seeking rather than judging just based on the nature of the language. And so, again, that's, that's something that I learned from studying the early modern period, which is that apparently intolerant language and forms of practice uh, and uh, exclusionary agendas in the right context can be used for what we would call progressive ends. Yeah. Um, that's sort of difficult to wrap our heads around, even though we recognize on the other side that the language and the, 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 the larger project of secular liberalism can be exclusionary. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for a fascinating conversation, Seth. Thanks for having me. You know, there's a lot more that we could have delved into. Unfortunately, we're kind of out of time, but I encourage you to read Seth's book to get some more insight into this project it was called Parables of Coercion, Conversion, and Knowledge at the End of Islamic Spain. It came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2015. For those of you that just want to know a little bit more, uh, come to our website. Uh, Seth will provide us kind of three to ten sources that you can peruse on your own time and find out a little bit more. Uh, and we also encourage you to leave your comments. Tell us what you think about the podcast. Come to our Facebook group. Participate in this group of, I think, over 27,000 people now. And we hope that you tune in again in the future for another episode of the Autumn History Podcast. Thank you. Yeah,